Our sermon text today is from 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, verses 1 through 17. First John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Join me as I pray for the Lord's help in seeing and hearing him speak today. Lord God, it's, it's good for us to be in the house of the Lord together on this day on this Lord's day where, where we have come together to offer praise to your holy name through our prayers and confession of sin, through giving back what you've given us and through singing your praises. And now through our attention, especially to your word right now, I pray that your word would speak to each of us according to the need that you know that we have and that you'll give us the help we need by your spirit to want to obey the words on these pages because they're not just words on pages, they're your word. And we ask it so that your glory would be made evident for all to see, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're looking today at this second chapter of 1 John, and it's it's an ambitious task to look at this much today. Uh, I hope we can get through it all, uh, but it's worth noting that in, in the first chapter, before this second chapter that we get to, that John has presented in that first chapter, Jesus as the one in whom believers have salvation and fellowship, and that we acknowledge sin so that we can be free of it, free from sin by the forgiveness and payment for sin uh, on behalf of us at the cross of Christ. That's chapter one. Jesus is the forgiver of sin, gives us fellowship with him and with each other. 
And then when John moves into his second chapter here, the one we're looking at today, John turns to questions that people who are in Christ may have, questions that address their need for reassurance that what they believe is true, that they do have fellowship with him, uh, have fellowship with and live by the power of Christ Jesus in them, who cleanses them and us from all sin. Chapter 1 calls that cleansing walking in the light. If you look at chapter 1, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. So now in chapter 2, there are things that then come into play based on us being cleansed from our sin. For instance, look at the the beginning of our verse 10 of chapter 2 that we just read. Now in in verse 10 that we just read, chapter 2, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So to walk in the light now is to love, to love our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that we'll deal with today in this first, uh, in first John chapter 2. It's a chapter about three things, really, I think. It's about obedience and love and worldliness. Obedience, love, and worldliness seem to be the things that John is keying on in this part of the second chapter that we're looking at. So it's for those who need reassurance, and not first-time assurance of salvation, but reassurance. For those who are shaken and discouraged, as we can get in this world, uh, sometimes we need reassurance to confirm in us that our faith is in Jesus. And John jumps jumps right in at chapter 2, verse 3, with a method really of testing us in this regard. This is something that John Stott talks about in relation to this chapter, that he says it has tests for us here. What we have here are a few little tests for us. Actually, they're big tests. And and John, remember, is writing this to encourage us. He's not not testing us uh, in order to to, to bust us. You know, you, you failed the test. That's not what he's doing. No, John is trying to test us in order to reassure us. He's writing to people he thinks are believers, but he does do something interesting in these next few verses that unless we understand could be confusing to us. He does this little thesis antithesis thing, okay? Thesis antithesis, say that too many times too quick. Addressing the person who has confessed and repented of their sin and who now may be asking how do I know I'm truly born again? How do I know how, how, how I'm doing? John says this in chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth's not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So he's talking about saying and actually doing and keeping. So this might be called the first test of faith that John introduces here. This is the test of obedience, the test of obedience. I said the chapter is about love and obedience and whether we're worldly or not, we'll get to that. But he sets up these tests first. And this first test is the test of obedience. Notice in his third verse that what John is trying to get us to see isn't just that we know God. What he's trying to get us to see is how we know that we know God. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, he says. 
So there is the reassurance. But the next thing in verse four may confuse us if we don't understand what John's doing here, because as soon as he reassures us, okay, if I obey, if I keep God's commandments, then I know God. As soon as he does that, he turns around in verse four and says in verse four, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now you have to understand that here John is describing actually an opponent of the true people of God when he says, whoever says. That is what is going on with these ones who had left the people being written to here. If you skip ahead to what wasn't in our text at verse 19 of chapter 2, he says in chapter in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. I think it's these are the people that he's describing back here in verse four when he says, whoever says, he's really talking about those who have left the faith, abandoned the church, or will ultimately leave the faith and abandon the church. He may be talking to people hearing this right there, but he is referring to people who are, are going to or have left the faith. The problem with all that is that a sensitive believer sees verse four and reads that and says, well, I don't always keep his commandments. I don't always obey. I don't even always want to obey. Does that mean I'm not a believer? Well, John's already addressed that, hasn't he? First John 2, 1, our very first verse, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, what does that mean? That means though we may not sin, we will. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The believer will confess and repent of sin. The believer will ask the question. The believer will be concerned with sin. It's the unbeliever who will be the whoever says guy in this verse. Whoever says. And it's the believer who won't just say, but actually do and keep the commands. Because notice that it's the believer who is not even described according to what he says. End of verse 3 says, if we keep his commandments. And the start of verse 5 says, but whoever keeps his word, God's word. Nothing about saying. Saying seems to be reserved for the unbeliever in the way John speaks here. Okay, So John's method here, when he says whoever says, he's, he's trying to have us see that if someone says, they need to back that up. Also, and be someone who does. Someone says ought to do, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked, he says in verse 6. So John isn't saying you, you pass this test of keeping God's commandments and walking the way Jesus walked. That if you pass that, you make yourself into being a Christian. No. Rather, if you're a Christian, this is how you live. That's what he's saying. So see what John is doing here is balancing the fine line between encouraging believers and exposing unbelievers. He's saying, here's how you know that you know God. And here's how you know that they don't. And he's doing it to reassure true believers going back and forth between encouragement and exposing. And this is, this is something uh, that I, I read somewhere that a preacher named Dick Lucas talked about. He's pointed out in his treatment of 1 John is that John goes back and forth between encouragement and exposure is the way Lucas puts it. 
encouragement and exposure. You can look at most of what comes next here in this light. And generally, John alternates between encouragement of believers and exposure of those who only say they are. You look at, uh, look at verse 3. Verse 3, that's an encouragement, right? Okay, and by this we know, we've come to know him. And then verse 4 is an exposing, right? That's a whoever says. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. So that's a whoever says. That's an exposing. So verse 3 is an encouragement. Verse 4 is an exposing. And verse 5 also, if you look at it, is an encouragement. So you see this alternating of phrases of encouragement and then exposure of unbelief. All that with the purpose of reassuring believers that they pass the test of obedience and they know it. Verse 3, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him. And the end of verse 5, by this we may know that we are in him. So we know we've passed the test of obedience and we know it. And we know him and we know that we know him. So that's the first test of obedience. How about you? As you sit and look at these verses today, do you pass the test of obedience? The one who knows God will know that they know him and so will do his will and keep his commandments. Not to earn his favor, but because he has favored us to want to obey him in that way and walk in the same way that Jesus walked. And the one who passes the test of obedience will know that they know him and will continually run to him acknowledging sin that does come up and confessing and repenting and enjoying fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. I really love that 20 schemes song that we just sang. I had never seen that song before. Thank you for that. Well, that's one text test. The next test that John proposes, again, in order to reassure and encourage us and not to discourage the the believer, The next test is the test of love. So we have the test of obedience. Now he moves on to the test of love. And he lays that out rather masterfully in this next section of verses 7 through 11. I told you we'd try to get through it all. We're already getting into 7 through 11, so we're we're doing okay. Um, He starts in the first two verses, 7 and 8, by saying that he is writing nothing that is new. And yet it is new. John has these interesting ways of of talking and and pulling us in. And so he says this in verse seven, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And verse eight, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So how is it, we ask, how is it, John, that this commandment is both old and new? Well, John goes on in verses 9 through 11 to contrast love and hate for our brothers and sisters. So clearly, the reference to the commandment he's talking about here in verses 7 and 8 is a reference to the commandment to love. That's why it's an old commandment. That's why he can say it's an old commandment. It's a reference to the commandment to love. The commandment to love is nothing new to those who are in the faith. It's what John's original readers committed themselves to, which would be to obey all God's commands from the Old Testament law, right? To love God, to love others, all of which then the Lord Jesus reiterated in his ministry. But until the time of Christ was just law. But Jesus also said, love your brother, just like the law did. But even though it's an old commandment to love, because it comes from the old covenant, the sense in which it's new is because now 
the believer in God has Jesus Christ and has the Holy Spirit. The jump for them then was from law to Christ. Both said, both the law and Christ said to love your brother. But now for us, it's Jesus who gives that a whole new dynamic because it's Jesus who supremely loved like no one else has ever loved. It's it's no different for us really to say it. It isn't like we've never heard the command to love your brother before, before Christ was our Lord. We nonetheless heard that we were supposed to love other people. But now knowing Christ and knowing the love he has displayed in loving to the point of death and and death on a cross at that, to know Christ is to know love. And to know love is deeper and more joyous, more reassuring and more comforting than we ever thought possible. When we were just told, love your brother or love your sister, literally your sibling, love them even though you hate them, right? When we were told that, we didn't know what love was. But when we know Christ, we know what love is. When we know the brothers and sisters in Christ, we know what love is. It's, it's better than we ever thought possible. It's, it's like following the commandment to love is now love in technicolor when it used to be black and white. Uh, to know love in surround sound digital stereo when it used to be through an old ragged analog speaker. Um, that's what John means when he says, I'm telling you an old commandment, but it's really new now middle of verse eight, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Jesus is that true light that is already shining. That one who makes this joy in love possible. And here now again, verses nine through 11, lay out this other test to encourage believers, this test of love. Again, it's like the previous test of obedience presented in an alternating pattern of encouragement and exposure. And notice in verses a nine through 11, that the pattern is similar to the one before where the unbeliever is presented as whoever says, verse nine, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Obviously playing off of the description of Jesus as the light that is already shining. Here, the one who says he has the light proves he doesn't by hating his brother. So he likes to, he likes to say, love your brother, but he, he doesn't really mean it. You'll recall, by the way, that that Jesus answered the the question of who's my neighbor. Remember back in Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that that our neighbor is anyone who has a need. Well, it's very similar here to who is my brother. If we're asking that of this passage here, who's my brother? In this case, more specifically, my brother at least means a fellow believer. And characteristic of an unbeliever is that they actually hate the believers with whom they allegedly are in fellowship with when they say they are in the light. So to follow the pattern of verses as in the test of obedience, now here at the test of love, verse 9 is an exposure. You see that? Verse 9. Verse says, he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. That's an exposure. Verse 10 is an encouragement to love, right? That's an encouragement. You see that? And then verse 11, again, in following the pattern, is an alternating exposure of the unbeliever who really walks in darkness no matter what he says. And there is, in verse 11, there is a danger that is further amplified in verse 11 like it is nowhere else in this section, and that's regarding continual walking in the darkness. This is a real warning to real people. This continual walking in the darkness, to follow the metaphor of light versus darkness 
end of verse 11, you keep walking in darkness. The end of verse 11 says he does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, it's like one, one commentator, Stephen Smalley, said. He says, perpetual existence in darkness rather than light causes spiritual blindness and consequently makes it difficult to find the way back to God. Hatred produces hatred so that the possibility of loving becomes more and more remote. So as we look here at these verses, how about us? Do we pass the test of love today? The one who knows God will live the life of love and will know that he walks in light and so will love the brethren as Jesus did. And the one who passes the test of love will know that they know him and will continually run to him Again, acknowledging sin that does come up as we fail to love perfectly and confessing and repenting and enjoying the fellowship we have with God through Jesus Christ, the righteous, the light who's already shining. You'll notice as you come to the next section now, verses 12 to 14, the whole section is in most of your Bibles, I I think, I hope, written almost to look like a poem or a song. It's written in sort of opposite lines with balancing lines that start with, I am writing to you, or something similar. It also repeats like a song would. This section is a break in style that John has been employing. He's he's been doing this back and forth thing. And now of encouragement and exposure, thesis, antithesis, believer, unbeliever. These verses now, 12 through 14, are meant as an encouragement to the whole church, just to kind of break in in the middle here and encourage the whole church And it's only encouragement without constantly breaking in to show the opposite. So it's a poem or a song. You can tell that just by looking at it. He's saying, here's where you are, those who are followers of Jesus. And then John proceeds to rattle off things that are all characteristics of those who believe. So it's as if he says, now that I've told you what it is to be a believer, and now that you know the difference, let me just drop that approach for a minute. And let's just break into song here and reassure you and encourage you that you are believers that you are believers in Christ. Just look at it for a second without without paying much attention to the children, fathers, young men, or the repetition first. If you just look at it this way, here's what John is essentially saying to these who need reassurance. Look at verse 12. He essentially says, I'm writing to you because in Christ, middle of verse 12, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Verse 13, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. Also, verse 13, because you've overcome the evil one, because you know the Father, also verse 13. And the end of verse 14, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. So that's encouragement. Can you see how that may be an encouragement to a believer struggling with the questions that often come with the ebb and flow of living the Christian life? You know him. You've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You're strong and the word of God abides in you. That's an encouragement. That's pure encouragement. And the categories then, and if now if we look at it in terms of the categories of children, uh, fathers, and young men, it's, it's just John saying that he's writing to the whole gamut of the church. And, and the categories match what may be true in general of the various stages of the Christian life, right? The children, those new in the faith in verses 12 and 13, they're called out as being forgiven and knowing the Father, although that should be true of all of us in Christ. The young men, next step up, the young men are those who are usually the most zealous, They're called out in verses 13 and 14 as being the strong ones who are overcoming evil and guarding the word of God. That's what sometimes zealous young men do, young men and women, although that should be true of all of us at all times. 
and the fathers. Now we graduate to those who have been around a while, which generally means the more mature believers are seen in verses 13 and 14. And the only completely repeated characteristic in this section, the fathers are seen as knowing him who is from the beginning. In other words, they have the longest track record with God, with the God who is from the beginning. These are generalities, but that's why he sings the song this way. He's speaking to all believers, all believers in all stages of life and encouraging everybody together. The only special term John uses that may not necessarily mean only young ones is the term children or little children in here. This is a term he uses throughout the letter. And and he most certainly uses it as a term of affection for all his beloved children in the faith. When he says little children, he's, he's not necessarily, don't think he's only addressing young people. He seems to be addressing all God's people. You see this throughout. Just look at chapter two, verse one. My little children, he started off, right? Verse 12, little children. Beyond our text, verse 18 starts off with children. John keeps referring to all of them and all of us as his children and little children at that. It's a term of affection. You know why he does that? John is known as the affectionate apostle. Look at verse 7. Here he calls them beloved. Beloved. Don't think it's a mistake that John should begin a section on love with the affection term beloved. John is known both because of what he does here and also in his gospel. He is known as the apostle of love in some of the writings you see in commentaries and things. John, the apostle of love, isn't that interesting? Uh, that the one who Jesus called a son of thunder, right? Uh, that the one who wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village should be later in life, in his later years, called the apostle of love and to speak this tenderly to his little children, to his people. It is interesting. And it is also a testimony to the power of the unleashed love of Jesus Christ in the yielded life of a Christian believer. It's true of John, it could be true of any one of us. That no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how we've been, we may be called people of love, like he's called the apostle of love. And it should be an encouragement to those of us who are not known so much for love as we ought to be, that Christ in you can change all of that and continually make us nearer and nearer to who he made us to be as those who love. Speaking of love and speaking of obedience, if those are the tests, love and obedience, that reassure us that we know that we know God, then the next thing John presents is the final exam. So we got these two tests. Now he presents the final exam to go along with the metaphor of tests. He's just gotten done addressing the church, children, young men, fathers. Uh, what is it that he now does and says at the next to the church? He says this, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What does John mean when he says world here in verses 15 through 17? He doesn't mean that love of the world is love of the planet. That what he means when he forbids us to love the world is not to love participation in the world system, right? We know that. In the things that entice people to participate in sin. We who no longer belong to the world are to no longer be driven by the three things of the world that John mentions here in the middle of verse 16, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Those three things we're not to be driven by. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life. Those three things aren't from the Father. 
it says, but from the world. And regarding the world, that we say the world isn't so great a place as Christians, I don't think that can be disputed. What is it that people say to one another, Christians and non-Christians, after a loved one has passed, passed away? You hear this in the funeral home a lot. It's common to hear and say, well, he's in a better place. She's in a better place. Um, we hear that kind of talk. And the better place we're thinking of when we say that is heaven. And the place that it is better than is this world. So at a most crucial time in life, death, comes an acknowledgement by the living that there is a better place than this world. We always say that. And yet, after acknowledging that to be true, that there is a better place than this world, we go on afterward and continue to live like this is the only place. Sometimes our words and our sincerity at a most pivotal time in a funeral home then don't match up with how we practically live. We have to be cognizant of that. Now, remember, he's saying this to Christians. It's part of the reason he's saying don't love the world. Let what you say about those who have departed match up with what you live. He's saying to not love the world. The command certainly could be for all people, but the main thing John is saying here on the heels of addressing the church and encouraging and reassuring them in the faith, the main thing he's saying is church, church, don't love the world. Church, don't love the world. So he's talking to Christians, which tells us what? tells us that Christians can become entangled with love of this world. And there are at least three areas in which Christians can and do fall into loving the world. How do we fall into loving the world? One is becoming enamored with the world. Becoming enamored with the world. This is what it means when verse 16 talks about the desires of the eyes, right? You see something and you want become enamored with it and you want it. It's what goes on when you see a car you want or, or a truck you want. Uh, I'm from Detroit, so I have to say truck. Um, the world doesn't design a car only for utility purposes, right? If if a car was just a box with wheels and an engine, then we would not have a problem with coveting, would we? But it isn't. A car is not that. It's designed for appeal, to make me want it. Christians can become enamored enamored with all that is in this world. Another area where we fall into loving this world is by becoming distracted by the world. So we can become enamored with the world and things of the world, but we can also become distracted by the world. This is what goes on with all the things we invest time in in order to amuse ourselves. And this has grown exponentially in the last decade, hasn't it? Why did the BlackBerry, which just seems like a few years ago, some of you might be too young to know what a BlackBerry even is, but it was, why did it become known as the Crackberry? because people were ruining their lives by becoming addicted to the constant information. And it certainly hasn't gotten any better since then, has it, for any of us? Well, how can I love my Christian brother and yet never talk to him because I'm addicted to my smartphone? Uh, forget Blackberries, they're gone, I think. I don't know anybody that has one anymore. But we've progressed way beyond that. Now that's becoming distracted by the world. That's not saying you can't use those things, but it, it's a, just an example. Becoming distracted by the world doesn't have to be an obviously sinful thing, does it? It can also happen, uh, it's a technology thing, but it can also happen subtly by what may seem innocuous like, like this. And I think I've told you this before. One of the things that grates me at this stage of life is that I can still tell you that Al Kaline's lifetime batting average was 297, but I have difficulty naming all 10 commandments. Or that Al Kaline hit 399 home runs in his career but I couldn't tell you exactly in what order Paul took his missionary 
journeys, not without the maps in the back of my Bible. Why is that? Because the formative years, even of a Christian life, were spent being distracted by the world and its amusements. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want us to hear that we become righteous by, by throwing away our smartphones or not paying attention to sports. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that love of the world sometimes comes in subtle packages, doesn't it? It's not just the obvious worldly things that we can become enamored with or distracted by. It may be things that we hardly notice. So we have to be on guard for that because the third mistake even Christians make is believing that the world can deliver anything of lasting value. Believing that the world can deliver anything of lasting value. I would hope the last few days tell us that we know that. The world can't deliver anything of lasting value. It can deliver temporary pleasure, which comes at a price, but the world, verse 17, is passing away along with its desires. So we're not to invest ourselves in this world. It can deliver nothing of lasting value. So becoming enamored with the world, becoming distracted by the world, believing that the world can deliver anything of lasting value, those are three mistakes that Christians make that we must avoid in our quest to not love the world because the world is passing away and because love of the world does not come from God. So this final exam, as it were, of worldliness takes into account both of the first two tests of love and obedience. How do I know that I know him? I obey him and his commandments. How do I know that abiding in the light, uh, that I'm abiding in Christ? Well, I love my Christian brother. Now I take those two tests of love and obedience into the world. How do I know for certain that in the end, when all said and done, that I love God and that I know him and that I want to follow him and live with him forever? How do I know that? I don't love the world or the things of the world. I obey God by avoiding worldly attitudes. I love God and my Christian brother, not by getting tangled up in the worldly system, the one that verse 17 is, says is passing away anyway. And I, and I invest my life in that which I can abide forever in. And that, that is to do his will, to obey him and to love him above all else. That's how I know, is I do those things. The bent of my life is toward that by God's grace. So this, see, this final exam is like, it's like if, if you're in a class and your entire grade uh, hangs on two midterms worth 25% each and a final worth 50. Uh, and, and then the final, since it covers all of the course, if you get an A on that, even though it's supposed to be worth 50, your instructor makes it worth 100 because they figure I'm gonna wipe those first two grades out and say, if you pass this final exam and you learn that at an A level, I'm gonna give you an A. There's an analogy there, but be careful because like all analogies, it's not perfect. If in the end I pass this test and love not the world to say it the King James way, if I pass that final exam, then I've passed the other tests, I think, haven't I? Because if I love my brother in Christ rather than the world, and if I obey God rather than follow after the world, then I know him and abide in him forever. The first two tests we looked at today aren't really separate tests from this final exam in the sense that you could pass one and fail the other. Like, I'm not so good at love, but I excel in obedience. No, the passing of the final couldn't happen without the successful passing of the first two tests. He who passes the final exam of worldliness or lack thereof actually will do so precisely because he's learned the lessons of the first two tests that comprise it, namely obedience to God and love of others. And that is what John has been trying to reassure us of here. Not that we are believers because we pass some tests, but that we passed precisely because we are believers. And by God's grace and mercy, we could pass those tests because we are believers. So it progresses 
from obeying God to what obedience looks like in relation to loving your brother, to rejecting the world and all that is in it. And this is what's best for you as a child of God individually. It's what's, what's best for us in the Christian community collectively. It's best for the whole of us, for each of us to not love the world so that everyone in the church is obeying God and loving one another. And this cannot happen completely the way it's supposed to in a Christian community until those in that Christian community are cured from loving the world. Because the final exam of how much you love or don't love the world and how much you obey the world goes back to how you did on those first two tests. Do you love the world? Then you haven't focused on loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. How can I love my brother if I'm constantly not talking to him? Do you follow the world? Then how can you obey God? You cannot serve two masters. Can't serve God in a world system that is anti-God. So these are tests that kind of telescope and escalate into the final test and then feed back into the initial premise that those who fail to do this perfectly will repent and be forgiven. Because the end of this is we're not going to do any of this perfectly. It's not just the absence of sin is what he's saying. It's not just the absence of sin that characterizes the Christians. It's also the presence of love and obedience and staying away from the world. So it kind of goes like if I obey, then I love. If I love, then I reject worldliness for God's sake and for the sake of my brother. So obey God, love my brother, love God, reject the world in the world, but not of it, basically. But even as Christians, we're going to sin, right? And when we do, where do I run to? Right to the beginning of 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then back in the first chapter, 1 John 1, 9, we all know that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just an encouragement as we end here. Let's spend more time here in his word. Spend more time in his word than we do up here or out there. Let's let this, the word, inform this, our minds, more than we do. Saturate our minds with thoughts of our Savior. And and don't let the pressure from our peers or from the world dictate your life and take time away from your life in Christ. Because, and I think we all know this, We'll live to regret every moment we've wasted on the trivia of this world that is passing away anyway. Every moment that you could have spent doing the will of the one who bought you with the blood of Christ. And the reason we'll regret it is you'll know the the sweet fellowship with God and his people from time to time. And increasingly, I'm seeing it later in life. I pray that you do too. The sweet fellowship that we know with Christ and with Christ's people. And knowing how sweet it is to obey God and love his people You will long for more time in which to enjoy that and regret the time that has passed in which we didn't. That, I think, is why John has reassured us as to how to know that we know God so that we don't waste our time, but so that we invest our time walking in the way of our Savior and doing the will of the Father and loving the people of God. May we who follow Jesus in his power and by his grace bring honor to his name like that. Let's pray. Our Father God, I, I want to pray first for those of us here today who, who maybe identified more with the exposure verses than the encouraging ones, who maybe thought along the way, like we all do at times, I don't, I don't love others. I don't want to obey God. I do love the world. I pray, Lord, that that would lead us to conviction and to calling upon you to forgive and in some cases maybe to save. And that for any who know that they have not come to know you, that you would change their will and hearts such that 
they do and save them. And then for those to whom this letter was intended, who need to be reassured of how we know that we know you, that we will run to that true light already shining, that we'll run to Jesus, spend our time obeying your commands, loving other people, and especially those fellow believers with which you've privileged us to be in Christ with in a church community. And we'll thank you for loving us enough to reassure us with the power of your word. Give us the desire to continually walk in the way our Savior walked. For God's glory and honor and in his name we pray.